Hi, it's Claire here. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. These live chats take place every Wednesday evening at 6.30pm UK time on World Ginger Running YouTube channel. And the link is in the show notes. I just wanted to let you know that you can find this and loads more advice and inspiration and gear tests all about trail and ultra running on my YouTube channel, Wild Ginger Running. There are training tips, advice from elite athletes, top coaches, nutritious recipes, key exercises, injury prevention information, and tons of trail kit reviewed from running packs to poles, waterproofs to head torches, GPS watches, and shoes, 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 and did I mention shoes? I've been going for a few years now, so there's a huge archive of content to help you out with your trail and ultra running. To quickly and easily find the information you need, simply type your query into the Google search box and then write wild ginger running after it. Then Google will show you whatever blog posts or films I have on that topic. Give it a try. And if you appreciate listening and all the information that I share on YouTube, you're also very welcome to support me on Patreon, which gets you some additional excellent perks and the chance to win some awesome prizes. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee every month, patrons get discounts, extra films, access to the exclusive Facebook and Strava groups, the chance to ask questions to every live chat guest, plus automatic entry into my monthly competition to win £400 worth of trail and ultra running gear. There are only about 150 patrons, so the odds on a win are way better than the lottery. Interested? Find me at patreon.com slash wildgingerrunning. Thanks for listening, guys. Have fun, enjoy your run, and I'll see you on the trails. Hello, everybody. Good evening, and welcome to the live broadcast. I was going to say wild broadcast because Shane is outside. But, uh, yeah, we are delighted to be here tonight with Shane Benzie, who is a movement and running coach, and he has just written a book called The Lost Art of Running, which we'll talk about as well tonight. Um, but we've got tons of questions from patrons here tonight. If you've got any questions on the live chat, then hit me up and I'll try and ask Shane as many things as possible. Uh, but first of all, welcome to Shane. And how are you doing? Have you had a good day today? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, busy day. So I've uh, been coaching. So I've had a, uh, a couple of sessions kind of uh, face-to-face coaching, some stuff up in the hills and one session where I'm... Uh, was chasing uh, one of the athletes on a bike oh, uh, cool. and I've had a couple of remote sessions as well so I do a lot of remote coaching uh, on uh, remote video analysis all around the world so I've had a couple of those today as well so it's been good. Oh that's good that you do the remote coaching so presumably people will video themselves in slow-mo on their iPhone or something and then you just get back to them with improvements for their technique. Yeah so they they do some video shots of themselves yeah, with an iPhone or any device they just send those shots to me and then I kind of put them on my software, slow it down, critique it, send them lots of stuff back uh, and then we kind of have like an hour's workshop face-to-face going through all of that footage. So, And it works amazingly well, actually. Um, cool. Yeah, when you're changing people's movement, it's really their software that you're changing. You yeah. don't have to be in the same park as them to do that. Actually. Yeah, that's really good. I'm so glad that you've been able to work through the whole COVID thing. That's really awesome. Um, and mm. I just want to give you a sense of everybody watching live tonight because we've got loads of people watching just now. We've got um, Philip Paddock. He says, hello, Shane and Claire. I'm looking forward to this one. Um, Grant Vernon is here. He says, hello. Ah, I know Grant. <laughs> he says he's halfway through the art of lost running. Um, and he's really looking forward to this. 
Um, Adrian Orange is here, he's one of my um, patrons as well. Um, Guy is here as well, um, and um, lots of other people watching too. Um, so, uh, so yeah, let's just like wind back right to the start. Like, what got you into this this whole area of uh, of sports coaching? Well, so I was a, a runner, I still am, but I was an ultra runner at the time. Um, and uh, I think I probably had two problems that I see many, many runners face now. And that was that I was constantly getting injured um, and I just wasn't getting any better at it either. So I wasn't getting any quicker and I was just always getting injured. And so I went on a bit of a journey to try and find a better way to run myself. Uh, and you know, I really couldn't. It was all pretty confusing. Everything seemed to be on a treadmill and everything seemed to be kind of based on biomechanics and it just didn't really make sense to me. Um, and so I kind of really got into it. I actually went out to America to, to kind of study to be a coach. I thought maybe the best way to learn is to actually become a coach. Yeah, so if you're going to do something, do it. Um, really do it, 100%. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, so I went out to America to become a coach and qualified as a coach. Um, and then came back to the UK and started kind of coaching. Um, but there were still lots of really big gaps in my knowledge. Um, and things still weren't making sense for me of the way that I'd been taught to coach them, but the way I saw runners moving kind of beautifully. Um, so I kind of down tools and I went to Africa. I thought, right, I'm just going to go and watch the best runners in the world run. So I down tools, went out to Africa, to Ethiopia first of all, managed to black my way into a kind of a training camp with an amazing coach. Spend about a month there, and it's all kind of gone from it's kind of all gone from there, really. And uh, I spent the last decade kind of chasing around the world, looking at amazing athletes, but also living with tribes and indigenous people as well to try and understand what natural human movement is. Wow, um, it sounds like a like a BBC TV program, like that you should be <laughs> well, well, <laughs> you should be a presenter or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it's been a yeah, it's been an, an amazing journey. Well, I'm still on it, obviously, but it's been an incredible journey. And very early on in that journey, I discovered this elastic system, the fascial system in the body. That's what I first saw in Africa. I didn't know what it was. Uh -huh. um, and then I kind of started to move and be a, a researcher as much as a coach, and, and kind of research why uh, in Africa, in East, in, in East Africa, they would move in this amazing elastic way, and we kind of don't in the Western world. Um, and so I identified that as a plastic factual system, and that's pretty much what I've been chasing all around the world and oh. trying to understand it better and then, and then kind of coach it. Cool, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and I see the little thing behind you, I think you're going to show us a bit more about that in a moment. But, um, oh, yeah, I've my just 10 got... segrity model, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I remember being wowed by that when I came to see you to do the film that we did together. If you want to see that yeah. film that me and Shane originally did together, it's, there's a link in the film description below, so definitely check that out. Um, but Mick Suville, first of all, um, has a question, um, and he mm. says, what insights has Shane uncovered from his research of Indigenous people? Has there been anything like unique that he has uncovered or do we all have a similar natural running technique so it's a good question so I think we're all we're all kind of designed to run if you like you know that's kind of how we used to earn our living and I don't think that's breaking news yeah so we were kind of like designed to run um, but you know there are two really there are many things that influence our movement but two of the big ones are a, our perception of our movement. So 
when we're running, if you're running, what you perceive is happening as you run has a huge influence on how you actually move. Okay. And we have a perception of biomechanics. Okay. Even if you don't study biomechanics, biomechanics is how we learn about our movement. But I've not, I think maybe biomechanics or the traditional view of it kind of sends us off on a bit of a, gives us a bit of a curved ball, if you like, because you know, it's, it's, that, it's really a system that's designed or, or descri uh, sort of described by engineers. But we're not machines. You know, we're very synergistic, connected, fluid and elastic in our movement. So should our movement be described as levers and joints and, and muscles powering levers? I don't think so. But we are, we kind of grow up on a diet of that. We're tribes and indigenous people don't. So they really aren't subjected to biomechanics. So their movement, which again is a largely a software thing, hasn't been contaminated by this Western way of explaining movement. So I think they move in a more fluid way. And I remember when you came to, uh, when I came to see you, we did the film together, you were talking about the leg and, and where the indigenous tribes would say the leg started and where the Western world would mm. say the leg started. That was really interesting, I thought. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so if you, if you ask anybody in the Western world, where, where's the top of the leg? I mean, they would look at you as if you were slightly mad <laughs> because you're asking where the top of the leg is when we would all assume it's the top of the leg bone because we see the skeleton as the kind of structure of the body and then everything kind of hangs off of that. So it makes total sense to us that the top of the leg is, is, is the leg bone. But if you speak to people that don't really have that relationship with the skeleton, they would say the leg is actually much higher. Actually, if you looked at an anatomical view of someone, it would be at the top of the psoas muscle, but just below the rib cage. And actually, if you watch somebody run beautifully, the leg kind of does go much higher. Yeah, so they kind of think it starts kind of up here rather than down yeah. on the thigh area. If yeah, you watch wow. an African running beautifully, yeah, it looks like... like they're having incredibly long legs. Yeah. Uh, but actually, they don't at all. It's just that they move in a way where the leg just seems to go higher up the body. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, so that, and that's where a lot of my research is, 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 is understanding these perceptions. Because if I was coaching you to run and, and we have work together, then it's your perception I'm coaching. Yeah. If I can convince you that you are very elastic and synergistic in your movement, and when you move, you're connected and fluid, if I can convince you of that, you will start to move in a way where you want to accentuate what you now know. Yeah. Um, really, really important. Yeah. And then the second thing that the indigenous people and the tribes um, that is diff very different from us is your running is largely about posture. And I believe that your posture is kind of a sea of tension in the body created by your elastic system. Well, that's heavily influenced by what you do in your everyday life. And of course, in the Western world, we tend to sit quite a lot, on computers, and yeah. so we live a very different <laughs> life. And, yeah, we're all doing it. And I'm standing, to be fair, so yeah, I'm, you're making, doing really I'm literally well. making a stand here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we, you know, our bodies are often contorted into slightly strange positions for many, many hours in the day in the Western world. And so when we try and move fluidly, we have to bring that slightly odd sea of tension with us. Whereas tribes and indigenous people don't tend to, to do that as much. It's changing, the world yeah. is changing, but as it stands, they tend to have the edge over us on that. Yeah, like they're walking around, like doing things all day, like quite physically rather than sitting all day and then well, going for well, a run. Interestingly, the moment that they are not doing something that's a job, they will just lay down. 
Oh, because really? they are actually, yeah, they're hardwired to save calories and to save energy. Ah. So, and so very often they will spend long periods of time not doing anything, but they just don't sit. Yeah. So they might squat or lay yeah. or stand, but yeah. they don't sit in that position with their head down, hunched over. Yeah, because so, they don't have um, a chair. Like, they don't have chairs, really. Yeah. No, not yet. It's, but it's, again, it's, creep, it's creeping in. So actually, they might have more downtime than us, actually. Uh, but they just don't spend it sat in a really strange position. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. And I would say that my downtime is not spent sitting. Like, my working time is spent sitting. That's when I would do the sitting business like this. Yeah. My downtime is spent, I don't know, doing something in the garden or, like, doing the dishwasher, chores, things like that. But because we've got all these machines to help us, it's, like, less time now than, than it would be for, um, and like, cooking dinner doesn't take us as long we don't have to go all day and hunt for it or anything like that <laughs> exactly so our, so actually our working time becomes much longer than our downtime and we sit and work mainly yeah. So, um, yeah so it's a challenge so for anybody listening out there um, that it does do that if you could stand at your desk oh my goodness yeah. if you stood at your desk with tripod feet lengthened spine eye line on the computer with a, got a neutral pelvis and your core engaged, breathing into the bottom third of your lungs, you're training for nine hours. Wow, because that's powerful. Because your dynamic movement is just an extension of that. Yeah, but I find uh, that if even if I'm if I'm sat all day or stood all day, it's just the action of just doing the one thing for so long that is really difficult. So maybe I should like sit and stand and then sit and then stand. Absolutely, don't throw your chair away because yeah. you do need to move between the two without a doubt. Um, uh, but but if you could just spend a third of your day that you are sitting, if you could spend a third of that standing, okay. because bone remodeling, fascial re-architecting, muscle rejuvenation, you know, they're really taking place when we're weight bearing. Okay. And if we're not careful, we can go for long periods, days, without actually really weight bearing. Ah, okay, right, Especially okay. if a lot of us are working at home at the moment. Going to stand up, and I can't do it quite now because I've got everything plugged in. But I will stand oh, up at my desk for a third of the time. <laughs> Thanks, Shane. Time. <laughs> so we've got some very um, hilarious comments coming in. <laughs> um, so I just thought that you should know that Adrian Orange says, "Is the skeleton to your right the last client?" <laughs> <laughs> we didn't pay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a skeleton. So I, I might even use them tonight. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes I use the skeleton to discuss our relationship with it. So. Yeah, that's that's funny. And then Tim Brennan is just where we were talking about the leg there just earlier. He's going the hip bone is connected to the leg bone. You know, yeah, there's the even a song bones. about it. There's yeah. even a song about it. <laughs> yeah, so, so from a very young age we have that perception. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah. And every, every time you see the skeleton in cartoons, natural history museum, it's always stood like that skeleton there. It looks like it's its own structure. Yeah. But it really isn't it's just 206 bones floating, floating around. in your elastic system wow oh that's amazing and so um you mentioned a little bit about this before um but about how to get people to kind of listen to you and what you're saying but mehul vaiza says um how do you get people to buy into the importance of um, biomechanics and technique or your version of it i should say so so the way the way I would look at it, so for runners, I think if runners are out there running and training, pretty much everything that they're they're kind of looking at is getting a stronger engine. Yep. 
So everybody's running around trying to get what we call fitter, mm-hmm. and and we and we judge our fitness by how strong our engine is, how how, how fit our, our cardiovascular system is, which of course we need as runners. We do need that. But the work I do is focusing on something that I, I call Darwinian fitness, okay? fitness for the body to perform the task. Because you can run around building a big engine, but how many miles extra are we running a month to build this big engine, which is just making up for inefficient movements? Mm-hmm. So if every mile that you run, you move beautifully, you're not only getting a bigger engine, but you're breaking down the body, allowing it to build itself back up to do that task even better, which is got a Darwin's thought process, you know, fit, fit to perform the task. Mm. So that's what I would say is that even if you want if you want to be fit, um, then actually build a bigger engine, but also take some of the toll away from that engine by reducing the amount of boxing you need in the first place, by moving better, by loading better. And of course you're much you're much less likely to get injured as well. So so many runners. I think there are various statistics flying around, but the general consensus is in between 70 and 80 percent of runners every year pick up some kind of niggle. Yeah. Um, because when you're running, when your foot hits the ground, you've got about two and a half times your body weight coming back at you. Now, that's the impact is beautiful because it turns into elastic energy and throws us forward. But actually, if you don't manage that impact well, then it can come and hurt us. So, moving well means that you distribute, distribute or dissipate that in well, so a lot less likely to get injured as well. You'll just mm. enjoy it. Yeah, but it's like the benefits are tenfold, aren't they? It's not just mm. going faster, it's like enjoying no. it more, going further, going faster for less calories, etc. So you don't have to buy as many of those horrible gels. <laughs> Um, which leads us nicely onto Colin Clark's question, um, which is uh, like based on your um, uh, lots of research with all the indigenous tribes and in uh, Kenya and Ethiopia, etc. Um, Colin Clark wants to know what is the most energy efficient running form? Then, like, what are we all striving to achieve? So what we so I, so I get very excited about the the, the fascial system, the elastic system. Yeah. Sort of, and that's tendons and ligaments and something called myofascia. Uh, and you know, basically, we have fascia running all the way through our body. It's a connective tissue, okay? Elastic connective tissue. So when we run, if we get height into our body, yeah, if we put our body into elegant positions and get height into our body, we start to load this elastic system. Okay. But I think when we run, and I've worked with over 3,000 runners now, one-to-one, and as well as coaching them, I'm always really kind of probing them and trying to understand their perception of their movement so that I understand how to coach them. And we really, if we envisage our movement, we tend to envisage our movement being powered by our muscle. Okay, that's the traditional view. But muscles are a very, very limited energy source, incredibly limited energy source. So as we were evolving as humans, so about six million years ago, we would have been very heavy, very muscular, quadruped, so on all fours, um, and really wouldn't have moved around very much at all. Kind of like chimpanzees, if you like. And then boom, then we adopted a very, very uh, different approach. We developed an amazingly clever foot. The, foot, the human oh. foot is just about the most ingenious thing in the animal kingdom. So we developed a very clever foot and the ability to stand up on two legs and stand tall and become elastic. That meant we could cover much longer distances being efficient, 
small food, that's a problem. And so if we have been successful, that was why. And yet, when we run now, or when we do anything dynamic, we're desperate to use the muscles that we gave away six million years ago. <laughs> Our USP that we have, we've just forgotten. Oh. So, so a good, efficient running start, I believe, from, certainly from an energy uh, sense, is, is to get height in the body and move in a way where you accentuate and, and challenge this elastic system in the body, because that creates recoil and propulsion. Anything with the word elastic in it wants no oxygen, it wants no calories, it doesn't produce lactate. Just kind of wow! And so is that good. is that what your little um, model represents behind you? Is that? Oh, yeah. So my yeah. That, so my yeah. My children's toy. Yeah. My yeah. tensegrity model. That's exactly kind of what it represents. So, so the concept of tensegrity or biotensegrity for you as a human is that, as I said, you have two hundred and six bones. But they're all floating in a sea of elasticity. And this, this toy really kind of represents that. So the elastic stuff is your fascial system, and the wood is your bones. And as you move, you can see no piece of wood touches another piece of wood. They just float around in this sea of elasticity. That's kind of what your skeleton's like. So if you get beautifully tall, then you load elastic into this system. If you spend all your time with your head down, there's no elasticity in the system at all. Now your muscles have to do the work. So getting beautifully tall and creating balance and symmetry in your movement means every movement you make creates elastic recoil for the next movement. Ah, so you call it tensegrity, I call it pingy. Oh no, he's gone. <laughs> Let me just see if I can get Shane back. This Skype. Reconnecting. There is poor network connection. Oh, sorry guys. We had we were gonna talk about heel striking in a minute. Okay. Let me just hang up on Shane and then call him again. Sorry everyone, but if you do want to buy Shane's book, then uh, the links are in the description, the film description below. Let's just call him back and see. I, I don't know what's happened to Shane, um, but I will try and get him back. I'm just going to type him a quick message here. Um, yo, we lost you. Call back if you can. Yeah, he just froze on the screen. I think his signal might have gone somewhere. I hope it's not my signal. Now I've got loads of signal. But that was really interesting. He was just showing us that... Um, tensegrity model which had uh, well a, it was a children's toy that had representation of bones and um, and also uh, the the fascia that holds it together and if you don't know what fascia is if you've ever uh, sorry if you're vegetarian but if you've ever chopped a chicken um, there's like a, a thin film of quite kind of it's not tough it's kind of see-through translucent kind of material around the chicken muscle that's the fascia that holds it in place ah I think and we'll get, I'll get Shane to just confirm that in a moment because um, I obviously am not an expert. 
Hey. Hello. Hey. Sorry, I, I lost you just there. I don't know what happened there. That's okay. I was just filling everybody in on how they could purchase your book because um, Nad oh. Nadia Federman's just put one click. I just bought the book. And Excellent. Well, thank you. Yeah, and Cordroy F says uh, he wants that truck. <laughs> I don't know if you can buy the truck. <laughs> I don't think you're selling the truck, are you? Just the book. <laughs> no, I need the truck. I need the truck. I need something. I need something to hang the skeleton on. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Paul Jones says, um, reading the book at the moment, really enjoying the insights. So we've got a lot of love already for the book. And if you do want to buy the book, the links are all in the YouTube description below. Or if you're watching this on the, if you're listening to this on the podcast version tomorrow, then um, there'll be the book links will be in the show notes as well so so do give it a read because it sounds like a fascinating journey and we'll talk more about the book in a minute but you were just explaining sure. the 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 um uh i can't remember the word it begins with a t i did remember oh, the earlier. tensegrity bottle and then yeah. i was saying just as you left i was saying you call it tensegrity i call it pingy because it's, it's like a big pingy that, thing isn't it that's a, a good that's the technical Listen, term that's what you do yeah, yeah, you can as you run, You're you should be in a series of pingy movements. Yes, absolutely, very pingy. Yeah. Okay, it's too good. And you know what's really exciting to know is that this elastic stuff that kind of your skeleton sits in the sea of tension of creates the elastic recoil, creates the elastic propulsion. Do you know it's never more than seven months old. Oh, this yes. system rejuvenates and rearchitects itself over a seven-month period. So. You know, if you're sat at home thinking, oh, yeah, well, I didn't know about it when I was younger, it's not fair. Listen, if I bumped into you at Easter, you'd have a whole new elastic system in the body. Wow. If you don't change your movement, you'll have a new elastic system, but it won't do anything. It will just do the same job. Change your movements and you get a new elastic system that becomes more dynamic. You are completely in control of it. Yeah, of my own pinginess. Or I'm going to think, yeah, exactly. think pingy because you said it's all about the software. So I'm going to think more pingy. I'm going to think about my legs starting from up here rather than down um, at the hip bone. Um, and yeah, uh, I was going to say something else, but I've completely forgotten it. So I, I've got a couple of questions here about heel striking. Um, okay. So there's a lot of uh, previous thought about natural movement being about not heel striking it's like the number one thing that you do so I just want to like talk about this with you because we've got a couple of questions on it Philip Haddock in the first place says what can I what can I do to help me stop heel striking and start to run more effectively so he obviously equates heel striking with running better and then yep. Then there's a comment from Sally Gilson about how, just how bad is to heel striking. She's been running for 10 years, mainly injury free, and but all the advice says it's inefficient. I don't want to sure. injure myself at this point trying to re change running style though. So yeah. yeah, let's talk about heel striking and does it mean you're more efficient if you don't heel strike or what's the deal as far as you're concerned? So, okay, so, yeah, it's a really, yeah, it's a really good point. It's one that gets discussed a lot. So yeah, so I don't think heel strike is good. Actually, when you walk, so when a human walks, it's designed to land on a heel on a relatively straight leg. That is a walking gait for a human. Okay. But if we're not careful, our running gait adopts this walking gait approach. And so remember I said earlier on, when you run, when you hit the ground, you've got two and a half times your body weight coming back at you. Okay. That can be a beautiful thing. You shouldn't be scared of impact of runners. That's one of the big urban myths is that we're scared of impact because we blame impact for all of those injuries that we get. Impact never injured a runner ever. It's mismanagement of impact that injured. Oh. 
So when you're running, you make contact with the ground and you create impact. And you also decelerate as well. Every runner decelerates as they hit the ground. Both of those things turned into elastic energy and safety forward. If we land on our heel, we are then landing in front of it. You couldn't land on your heel underneath you. So you can only really land on your heel on a relatively straight leg in front of you. If you do that, the trajectory of the deceleration is good and it kind of comes back up a straight line which is a relatively straight leg and it kind of hits you and beats you up a bit. If you could land on what I call a tripod landing, a flat foot if you like, that means the foot, the dome effect of the foot, lands, so your foot has a kind of a dome effect to it, which is the arch of the foot, creates a dome effect. That dome effect dissipates the impact when you hit the ground. Immediately, even before it gets to the first joint, it's now being spread the And because it's more underneath the body on a softer knee, the trajectory of that deceleration turns into elastic energy and throws you forward. So landing on a heel is a good. Landing on a heel doesn't mean you're going to get injured, but it does mean you're not maximizing your ability to move efficiently. Mm. So it, I mm. guess there is a, sorry, I was just saying, I guess there is an argument for, your, for, for the lady who said, well, she's basically saying, if it's not broken, should I fix it? Well, that it's, it, it's true. If you're not getting injured and you're enjoying your running as a heel striker, that's fine, but you won't move as well as you could if you were landing with a tripod on the top of me and then using this elastic energy to, to, to kind of throw you forward. So I definitely think it's worth investigating and, and, and trying it. Um, yeah. because, just because you haven't been injured yet doesn't mean to say it isn't. Yeah, okay. I think that's interesting and I think, um, I don't know how people would know that they were necessarily heel striking. I mean, unless they had actually videoed themselves on an iPhone with the slow-mo thing that you can do. Um, sure. I don't know how people would actually know that. Maybe maybe people are thinking they're heel striking and actually they're, they're not doing as badly as they think. Well, yeah, it's, it is a challenge because on the bottom of the foot, you have a quarter of a million nerve endings on the bottom of your foot. Uh, and that's really exciting because if you land your foot with a tripod landing, every single one of those nerve endings is immediately sending information up into your body, telling you all sorts of exciting stuff about your environment. So that's one reason why you should land on a tripod so that you get all of that information. Actually, the only part on the foot where there aren't any nerve endings really is on the heel, on the calcaneus. So if you land on your heel, you don't always know you've done it. Mm. The nerve endings there, and your trainers are invariably built up more on the heel as well, or nearly always. So you really don't feel it. But you know, you talked about uh, a phone and videoing. Everybody should just be getting together, buddying up, and videoing. Mm. How would you know? Shop windows and shadows aside, we have no clue uh, mm. how we look when we run. Yeah. So if we buddied up uh, and kind of videoed each other, you'd immediately know, at least know what you'd have a much better idea of what you're doing. When I coach people remotely, just the very act of them videoing themselves, before I even speak to them, mm. teaches them loads. Mm. It's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, it's we're, we're more powerful as a group if we, you know, if we if we kind of help each other with this and, and, and video each other and 
help each other to, to, to kind of progress. I think that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. That's one of the things I've learned about the tribes and the indigenous people is they do everything as a group and, and are very tight and, and really help each other. So you can, you can, you can, you can do this with your buddy. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great idea. Yeah, really, really good. I Plus like nothing. that. Yeah. Plus nothing. Yeah. And if they just like listen to this podcast uh, or, or, show, or show on YouTube and then just um, what I'm getting so far is like running tall, like so your elastic system is like um, stretched out Engaged. and then yep. like um, not, not, not heel striking, but trying to get that whole foot kind of plant down there. Um, so presumably the leg is just kind of landing just under the hip or hip, that kind of area. Um, and going from there, that sounds quite a simple and, thing to do. <laughs> Is it simple? Well, yeah, yeah, I could kind of make it, sound, make it sound kind of simple. But I think the reason we heel strike is because we run with a walking gait. Uh -huh. And the reason we run with a walking gait is because we are terrified of getting air. Mm. We've been told that bounce or air in our stride is bad. So mm. we try and suck ourselves down to the ground. Well, if we suck ourselves down to the ground, we have no alternative but to run with a walking gait because there's really not much air to do anything with. Yeah. A little bit more spring mm -hmm. and circling and cycling the legs underneath you in this new beautiful air that you're starting to develop will enable you to run with a running gait rather than a walking gait. Yeah, yeah. So keeping the head up and the shoulders up and back. I remember you were telling me that I just had to stand up, and when I was running along, I really felt like I was leaning backwards like this. But yeah. when I saw it on the film, I was just more upright. <laughs> it was really funny yeah. sensation. Well, if, if, yeah, if you spend your life kind of slightly bent from mm -hmm. the waist and you assume that that's tall, when you actually get tall, it feels like you've, you've gone backwards. Yeah. Again, that's why you need to see yourself on video. If I work with an athlete, all I'm doing all the time is video, 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 because the body will proprioception trick you without a doubt. So yeah. you kind of need that video until you start to look at the video and feel how it feels and then start to put the two together. That's a really powerful way of learning. Really powerful. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Thank you for all the advice so far. And and everyone, you've got some quite quite some big fans here. We've got Philip Paddock says thank you, Shane, and just got your book. Um, and Michael Thrasher has said, I just finished your book, loved it, super helpful. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. There's so, going to be a lot of elastic runners out there. Yeah, everyone's going to be pinging around, no problems at yeah. all. <laughs> and um, we've got a question coming on the live chat from Di Wilson, who's one of my patrons. Um, and okay. he, he says, evening, fascinating subject matter. What is Shane's view on those carbon plated or high stack foamed shoes? Do they negatively interfere with the foot senses and nerve endings? Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, and I think it, the short answer is yes, but of course I never give a short answer, so I will talk about that. So absolutely, how could they not? You know, uh, I think anything. You know, we will. We are an animal essentially, so we are designed really to have nothing on our feet. Now, I don't think that minimalist is good. I'm not. I don't want everybody rushing out, burning their trainers, and running around in bare feet or going super minimalist. I don't think we're that animal anymore, mm. but you have to accept that if you put rubber in between those quarter of a million nerve endings in the ground, they're going to inhibit that data that's coming back. So then your question is, well, how much rubber? You know, should I? How much rubber do I want to put into it? And is it going to? How much is it going to inhibit my proprioception? Those quarter of a million nerve endings—they're telling you how hard you hit the ground. They're telling you what the ground felt like. Was it soft, bumpy, moving, rocky, icy? They will also tell you your perceived rate of exertion, how hard you're pushing off. And they give you a spatial awareness as well. 
So when you're running around, the, the nerve endings in the foot are really, they're your antenna. They're telling you all about your environment. Because actually, when you're running, your movement goes on in the dark, silent skull. You don't see and hear movement. You might see a bird and hear a car, but you don't see and hear movement. That goes on in the darkness and quiet. And it's the proprioception from those nerves that give you data to be able to make the next move. It's amazing we can even do it, but what we must do is maximize that information. So, yeah, you, you'd have to ask yourself how much rubber, but please, please, please don't go kind of super minimalist because that brings its own problems. Well, glass, uh, tarmac, yeah. it's just, yeah. we're not well, really yeah, made in that way. And just weigh, yeah. just weigh the body loads, you know, you can, you can really hurt yourself. So, when it comes to trainers, just think that, remember the, the, the human foot, as well as standing up tall and getting elastic, that our foot is our big USP. It's what made us human to a large degree. Let's not try and second guess that incredibly clever thing with bits of rubber. You can't, you can't do that. So buy a pair of trains that lets the foot do what it needs to do, and you protect it from glass and, and stuff like that, and the, with the trainers. And then the trainers help you interact with the environment, so grip to rock or mud or bounce yeah. on a track or whatever. So you know, but don't don't let them try and do the running for you. Yeah, yeah. And the and the carbon springs. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there at the moment with all of this kind of stuff. But you know, again, all they're trying to do is re is replicate what the human foot does amazingly well. Mm -hmm. And I would say ninety percent of runners aren't even leaving the ground in a way where those springs would work anyway. Mm -hmm. Spend spend your time and your energy. I guess I'm bound to say this, but spend your time and energy learning to use the foot and run well rather than trying to buy a box and buy our way out. Mm, yeah. Fits our, fits our psyche, we like to just buy our way out. So we think we can solve Take the problem by opening up a box, but <laughs> yeah. you're better off spending a few months learning to move differently. Mm, yeah, and that starts with videoing yourself and this is those yeah. basic things that we've talked about here tonight on how you can yeah. improve things. Honestly. Get out tomorrow and do it. And if you haven't, if you haven't got a buddy that you can run and you can do it with, just prop your phone up against a, a wall and run past it. Uh -huh. you, you, you can do it. Yeah, you or do that burst thing. You know, like the photography. You can set it off a ten sure. seconds delay and then do a burst, and that will show you your like your foot. You, you have to, you have to be yeah. You have to be a little bit careful with with even a series of stills because okay. they really only tell a story of a very small segment of time. You, the video is better, uh -huh. um, and, um, and I was actually looking at it yesterday with a, with a friend of mine. Um, on, without even putting it onto software, the phones now you can slow them down, and you can get a, an amazing idea of what you're doing. It can be exciting and shocking at the same time, but yeah. definitely enlightening. Yeah, yeah. Once you know, you can start to do something about it, and that's what the book. That's the book is really designed to try and take people kind of through that journey of changing your movement but really by changing the way you think about it. But it, the book does encourage people to video themselves. Without the best thing you could ever do. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a, a great book. And I've just, I've got some little quotes from the book here. Um, and you've said, Mother Nature gave us some amazing gifts as runners, which you're clearly very passionate about. And, um, <laughs> if, and you've said, if we rediscover them and use them, we can transform our dynamic and everyday movement. 
So it does sound like the book is going to do wonders for everyone. I can't wait to finish reading it. Um, and then along the way, um, you will learn, because so the, the book covers like your journeys into Kenya, Ethiopia, um, running the Arctic Circle and, and tribes and things in the jungle. And it says, along the way, you will learn how to incorporate natural movement techniques into your own running and hear from some of the top athletes that Shane has coached over the years. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky, very, very privileged, almost on a daily basis now to work with incredible athletes. And I, I work with, I mean, I get to work with world record holders and I work with complete beginners. I work with everybody, but certainly when I'm working with great runners, as well as coaching them, of course, I'm learning from them you know, at a huge amount. And so, you know, it's all over the world, even in, 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 in the UK, so people like Damien Hall or... Tom Evans and Ricky Spinks, Pascal, Dan Lawson, some amazing runners who, who, do a great, who do great things, not because of me, they're great runners, but, but as well as maybe trying to help them with some marginal gains, I'm also learning what makes them great runners. Mm -hmm. So that's really been fantastic for accumulating that information and, and really just trying to package it in a way where everybody kind of gets it and can do it. Because the one thing you know about these people when you meet them, they are just people. <laughs> down to work people who love what they do and, and, and very good at it but we've all got the same bits we can all do it yeah you know, we might not be able to race them maybe but it's about squeezing the best out of ourselves that we can. and that's all they've done and are still doing it for the pursuit of that so we can all do that we can all do that yeah, yeah, it's fantastic what you do. And I think sometimes you do a training camp with Damien as well, don't you, Damien Hall, who just did the Pan Away um, record. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So Damien and I do some training camps together. I've kind of worked with Damien for about eight years now, I think. Something like when he really when he started. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, he's, he gives us all hope, doesn't he, Damien? Because, yeah. uh, you know, every year he gets a year older. But he just seems to get a year stronger and a year faster. Yeah. And, uh, and fifth at and UTMB uh, 2018. Uh, that was just incredible, wasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. And uh, and he's, you know, he's just on the FKT uh, for the Pen Iron Way. And, and I, I did a little bit of work with Damien not long before he did that. And he came down and he's just bouncing everywhere. Amazing. I mean, you know, talk about elastic energy. Um, incredible. And if, and if you look at footage of him on the on that FKT, even towards the end, he's still bouncing. He's running. He's still running. Yeah, 268 um, miles and still running, huh? Unbelievable. But you know what? There's this really interesting fact, if I've got time to tell you. Oh, this yeah. Fact, We've got, like, five more questions. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, well, I'll be really quick. This is a fascinating fact. So just about every animal on the planet, this isn't in the book, actually, oh, just about every sleeping. animal on the planet. <laughs> this is, this is an exclusive one Yeah, special. exactly, exactly. <laughs> So just about every animal on the planet has what you'd call a curve of speed. So it runs and it gets faster and faster and faster and faster. As it gets faster, at some point it will reach its most energy efficient speed. Yeah. So just like if you drove a car at 56.6 miles an hour, it would do the most miles to the gallon. So every animal has a curve and then at some point they have the most efficient speed. There are two animals on the planet that don't have they have what's called a flat cost of transport, okay? And that's kangaroos and humans. Really? 
I thought you could say yeah, horses or something. No, no, kangaroos oh. and humans. So kangaroos and humans are pretty much the only two animals that run around on two legs. Uh -huh. yeah, some animals can, but really they're they're on all four. Mm -hmm. So kangaroos and humans. Although someone's going to write in now and tell me there's another. Um, <laughs> that would be useful. Kangaroos and humans are the only two animals that really move around on two legs all the time. Mm -hmm. And what happens with those two animals, because we are an animal, is that as they move faster, they hit the ground harder. So if you're running a 10 minute mile, you might hit the ground and create 2,000 newtons of impact. Okay? A lot of my research looks into all of this product kind of stuff with very clever senses. So at a 10 minute mile, you create 2,000 newtons of impact. That impact turns into elastic energy and throws you forward. At a six minute mile, you might create two and a half thousand newtons of impact. More impact, which creates more elastic energy, which throws you into the air even more. So the faster you run, the harder you hit the ground. The harder you hit the ground, the more you're propelled. So the runners at the front of the race are using the same, if not less, energy than the people at the back. Wow. Because the people at the back are just using their muscles, which is a very limited energy source. The ones springing around at the front are using more elasticity, which is free, which means they're using less energy. It seems almost unfair, but yeah. exciting if you tap into it. Yeah. And so Dan Lawson, who I worked with, so Dan mm. recently from the record for running. From Rerun, yeah. the yeah. eco-friendly um, website and um, recycling of clothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So Dan Dan broke the record for running from uh, Land's End to John. Yeah. So, and you know, and I know Dan. And I've been very lucky to research Dan and do some coaching work with him. And you know, and when Dan runs, when he hits the ground, he does just turn it into elastic energy and throws him forward. And he just keeps doing it. And yeah. that's why he was European 24-hour champion because at hour 18, when everyone else is struggling and shuffling, he's still just running. Yeah. But he's actually using less energy than the people shuffling mid-pack. Yeah. And so just springing it's along. Yeah, it's an amazing thing to tap into. you just got to kind of understand it and start to work on it. Yeah. And like uh, from just hearing you talk just now, I just really want to go and do a run now because I feel like really bouncy. Spr start uh, pinging about. Yeah, I just feel <laughs> like I'm ready to spring like Damien Hall, like not, maybe not for 268 miles, but you know, for at least no. a mile I can spring. Yeah. Well, so that, I really feel like starts. just leaving. I'm just going to go just now. I just, I'll leave you with everybody. <laughs> <coughs> but when you're, when you're, when your listeners or viewers go out and try this tomorrow, actually it's quite hard work at first. Because, uh -huh. of course, we're only as springy as the springy things we do. Mm. So if we haven't been very springy for the last seven months, we don't have an elastic system. So you have to wait, you have to uh, work to make that system But it can't, trust me, it really, really does come. And so even though it's hard at first, just hang in there and remember this, you know, your software wants to reject it as well because the perceived rate of exertion goes up. The book talks a lot about the challenges that come with changing your game. Most of them are software challenges, but if you persist with it, you'll be astonished at how your horizons can change. Because mm -hmm. I first met Damien, he was running around and dressed as a toilet, kind of running local mm -hmm. 10Ks. Yeah. Now he's one of the best athletes out there, and but still has time to look to, to have a young family and, 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 and do a job. So it could be done. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Um, and I've got like one, two, three, four, five, six questions from my patrons. So patrons are the people who support me monthly on the channel. So um, if you do want a chance to ask your questions to these wonderful experts that we have, like Shane here tonight, then do um, tap me up on patreon.com slash wildgingerrunning. Um, but we have uh, six questions from patrons. We'll try and get through them nice and quickly so Shane can get some dinner tonight. Um, oh, no, I'm good. Don't worry, I'm good. <laughs> um, but Kelly uh, Benedetti says... Um, when doing a flat 50k, is it beneficial to throw in changes along the way? It's like, should you do some butt kicks or some high knees to switch things up for the leg muscles? Um, but yeah, I've just seen leg muscles. <laughs> so she clearly thinks <laughs> running's all about the leg muscles and she'll well, listen we, to this well, and go, well, ah. Well we, well, we do. And I, yeah, and, and, and let, but we must understand that actually there is a very uh, symbiotic relationship between muscle, bone and fascia. It isn't all just fascia. The muscles are definitely doing their work as well. I just think we make them work too much. Well, you wouldn't want to do things, so things like butt kicks or high knees. They're actually using more energy. So mm -hmm. I don't think you'd want to do that. What, what, what works very, very well, if you feel you can, if you've got the time to do it, is to have a run-walk strategy. Okay. So, you know, if you're running, uh, you know, even if even walking for 30 seconds or a minute completely allows those muscles to relax that she that she kind of talking about um, and um, and gives them a slightly different task to do while they're walking so it's a way of resting them and then going back into a run um, so you can do that depends how much if you're racing then you might and you, and you can run 50k then you might not want to, to, to walk so then it really is just a matter of yeah taking the toll off of those muscles and using more of this elastic system to kind of do the work for you Fantastic. That is a great answer. And, and Kelly has got quite a few questions tonight. She's got, um, uh, she wants to know about uphill um, technique. Um, so she's saying that she's heard conflicting advice on the uphill running um, regarding whether to lean forward or to stay upright. So um, yeah. what do you think about up, um, uphill running technique for trail runners? So, yeah, it's a good one. So the moment you bend from the waist, your quads and your lower back are going to be working to hold you in that slightly curious position. Okay. And actually that's the last time you want that to happen when you're running up the hill because everything's got to work pretty hard to get you up that hill. And if we're talking about being beautifully tall and loading that amazing elastic system that you've got, the last thing we'd want to do is bend from the waist because we've now lost our elastic system as well. Plus the head quadruple in weight if it comes three inches down and it's the spine that will take the weight of that heavy head so if you start bending from the waist you're putting yourself into a world of trouble okay. so although but it's quite intuitive to do that i think to bend from the waist I yeah think really especially if that. you want to put your hands on your knees and sort of like do that cell running thing i suppose that's when yeah, you're walking though and some amazing runners do it but I can't see why it would be a good thing. It really, I think, keeping height in the body and that head up with the eye line up, getting getting the the the, the, the tensegrity effect of your body to take its own weight, rather than getting the muscles to do it as scaffolding. Yeah. I mean, if you if some of your some of your viewers could even do this now if they wanted to. If you if you stood up, stood really really tall with a nice length and spine. And started bringing your knees up, kind of level with your with your hips, 
you could do that for quite a long time and it wouldn't be tiring at all. If you carry on bringing those legs up and bend from the waist and do it, mm. it immediately starts to get painful. Oh, okay. And yet we're happy to run in that way. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's, uh, it's an eye-opener. Yeah, I, I probably they should watch some footage of, you know, like the World Mountain Running Championships or, you know, like Salomon make those great films of their athletes in action. So maybe watching some of those, like you said, with the video thing, watching some of those and then watching yourself and then seeing, do they, are yeah. they a bit more upright than me when, when, when they're going up the hill? Yeah, you do see, you do see, you do see a lot of amazing runners bent from the waist with hands on, with hands on prize. You do see that. Yeah. Um, but in my research and the way I understand the body, and certainly anecdotally the runners that I work with, it's better if you stay taller uh -huh. because you're elastic and you don't have to use as much as many muscles. And the ribs, uh, sorry, the uh, diaphragm, it gets to work properly as well. Yeah. Whereas if you're bent over, the diaphragm can't really work properly. Yeah. Which means your muscles have to do the breathing in the upper body. Uh -huh. uh, more muscle usage again. Yeah, ah, oh, that's really interesting. So the next time that I see you, um, and we'll make some kind of arrangement for another film in the future, I want to do an uphill running kind of masterclass with you. Um, yeah. So I think this would be well, a really good to, one to, to yeah, cover. Yeah, come to the pavilion because we've got the Chilterns right there. So yeah. Yeah, that would be really cool. And then so we've got a couple more technique questions from people. Um, Gordon Parton um, wants to know, uh, he said, all his technique went out of the window today, skating um, uh, on some ice, I think. He's, I th this was a question from uh, in the wintertime. Um, he said, no amount of um, spikes would have stopped me skating along today. Um, so he, he, oh no, it's mud he's talking about. So he wants to know about technique and mud. Have you got any advice? Because I don't, how much mud do you really get in Africa? Um, is it oh, very you muddy? You, you get a lot yeah, yeah. when the well, rains come. The, 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 the trails are essentially almost clay. Oh, okay. It's beautiful orange clay. Uh -huh. But when it rains, then boy, yeah. yeah ah. you get, Yeah. I, so I think um, those quarter of a million nerve endings on the bottom of the foot, sending all that beautiful data up into the body. If you're running on a surface that is challenging, ice or mud, um, or even if you're downhilling and, and you, you kind of, it's better to take more, shorter, but faster steps, giving more. So let's just say you are run, if you're running uh, across a surface at 180 cadence, so your feet are hitting the ground 180 times in a minute, you get 180 reports from those quarter of a million nerve endings. If you ran at a 200, then you'd get another 20 reports every minute from all those nerve endings telling you about the environment that you're running through. So there is a good case for saying that when you're running across something that's challenging, shorter steps to stay more in control and more of them means you get more control and more information back telling you what you landed on, how it felt and what your perceived rate of exertion and spatial awareness is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the research I do all around the world, on, I do a lot of research on athletes in extreme environments. Mm -hmm. So I'll study athletes that are running through deserts, through jungles, through the Arctic, all around and uh, often I'll analyze those runners before they go to the extreme environment and then I'll research them in the extreme environment. You can put a cadence, their cadence often goes up by about 15 feet in in the extreme environment because the brain is, is going into overdrive, yeah. running through the jungle thinking, oh my goodness, what's happening, what's happening? Yeah. Well, the way it understands its environment is through the foot. Yeah. And so 
it wants a higher cadence because it wants more information. But if you're not trained at that higher cadence, you've got a problem. Uh. So, so I think, yeah, shorter steps and more of them will give you a lot more software control and physical yeah, yeah, that's really useful. Yes, it's like kind of tiptoeing along rather than making these huge strides where you really have to trust each one. You need to kind of go, oh, 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 like this. Well, you, they're, they're quick, but you're not tiptoeing mm. because you need to hit the ground beautifully. Uh -huh. The moment you try and move over the ground and almost, so you, you hear a lot of people talking about running and they say, oh, imagine you're running on thin ice or over hot coals. Okay. It's as if, it's as if we've got this adversarial relationship with the ground and we don't want to touch it. Okay. You must hit the ground beautifully mm -hmm. because that's what turns into elastic energy and throws you forward. Mm -hmm. And if you get a good true landing, you have more stability. Mm -hmm. But tiptoe, you'd only be on one point of your tripod, no nerve ending to touch the ground, and you'd be all over the place. So actually, a good, solid landing on a tripod is good. Ah, excellent advice. There's lots of them. Yeah, that's great advice. And um, and I'm just thinking, to uh, this is, leads us nicely into Arlene's question here. Arlene Matelock says, um, in a very long event when the body tends to sag and we lose our form, um, what mental and physical things does Shade recommend we concentrate on to get to the finish, like still with good form? Because you do, you lose it, don't you, when you get tired? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, gait fatigue is, is the big thing, isn't it? It's... Uh... It's, it's one thing to run around for a couple of miles beautifully, yeah. looking amazing. But yeah, sort of 50 miles in or something, that can be quite a challenge. Well, I, I, kind, of, I kind of came up with this thing called what I call the centre line. So uh -huh. it, talks a lot about it. it talks a lot about it in the book with regards to posture and stuff. But a centre line isn't a line of elasticity. It's actually just a line I made up. And it kind of runs from your, kind of runs from your belly button and it runs up from the belly button, up through the chest, underneath the chin, up through the face to the top of the head. So it's a, a continuous line that you imagine. And when you run, you just imagine putting a bow into that line. Okay, so just opening up the chest slightly and putting a bow into that line. So you could give that line a color or even a name if you like, because that line's gonna come everywhere with you when you run. And if you just put a bit of a bow into it, it gets, your, it gets you nice and tall. It gets your upper body over your center of gravity. It also, by default, brings your hips forward and pretty much gets your pelvis into the neutral position, which engages your core. So just that, I've, so I've tried to take as much of the work as I can to put into the one thing that will, that will really, really help you. So it's a line from there to there. And, and do you yeah. mean stand up straight when you said put it into a bow? So, like, are you yeah, drawing so you, a bow? You're always, you're always thinking about being super tall and having uh -huh. a beautiful length and spine. And then you just open up that bow slightly. So if you imagine, like you know, a crossbow, yeah. Well, it's like it's like loading a bow and arrow. Uh -huh. That's how I think of it. Because you are by getting that body into that beautiful, elegant position, you are loading the bow. Uh -huh. Yeah, you're loading the tension in the bow. Um, and uh, you, may, I, the way, you know the old wooden galleons? They always used to have a figurehead on the front. Oh of them. yeah. It's normally a lady in that beautiful, <laughs> elegant yeah. kind of open position. That, yeah. And I actually, I worked with Elizabeth Barnes uh, for the Marathon des Sables, and we came up with this kind of figurehead ah. idea. But they're leaning um, forward from the hips. <laughs> so, yeah, no bending from the hips yeah. into this beautiful, elegant figurehead yeah. position. Uh -huh. and, uh, when she, and she won, we, we, we did it for the 2017 MDS, I think it was. 
and uh, before she went out there, and, uh, and I emailed her in the tent every night, figurehead, figurehead, yeah. figurehead. Just think of that figurehead. Yeah. She was amazing. I mean, there isn't a picture of her in that race that year without just looking elegant. That's what you're after, is mm. the thought process of being elegant. Even if yeah. if you wrote 10 things about yourself and elegant wouldn't be any of them, <laughs> it doesn't mean that you can't run in an elegant way because running really should be a sequence of elegant moves you make that propels your body. Uh-huh, propulsion and We kind elegance. of tend to stick a pair of trainers on and just try hard. And but thump there's about. there's a lot more to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm so, more elegant so that's than elegant. Line. So the book, talks, the book talks about that sense line. Obviously, there's a lot of information around it, but if you can think of that center line, then and I'm just opening up and putting a bow in that. That will really help us. Yes, yeah. Well, I think I'm a little bit more elephant, elephant than elegant, um, but I shall uh, put that into my mind and, and think bouncy. Um, yeah. And Arlene had another question as well. Um, she says, a lot of people and coaches and running shoe companies seem concerned about shoe drop, you know, the distance between the heel and the toe. Um, and she's yeah. saying, does it really matter? What are your thoughts on drop in, in shoes? I think it does matter. I think it definitely matters. So, yeah, so for those, I guess, who don't know, a drop in the trainer is how high the heel start, starts and how it's what it goes down to to the toe. So if it was zero drop, there'd be nothing at all. It would be completely flat. And I think they go up to about 14, where the, the heel could be 14 quite more stack, higher yeah. than the toe. Yeah, that is quite a lot. Now, it does matter. I mean, if you think about it, if let's just say it was an extreme and you had a pair of 14 mil drop trainers on. You, you know, you'd be almost on your, your heels would be high and you'd be kind of almost on your tiptoes. To allow you to be in that position, you'd have to gently arch your back. To allow you to arch your back, you have to drop your pelvis into an anterior tilt. If you drop your pelvis into an anterior tilt, you disengage your core. So by putting on a heavily stacked pair of trainers, you are challenging your posture. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't want to do that. So people who wear high heels are, are essentially putting themselves into that position in an even more extreme way. Um, but if you go to zero drop, you have to be careful because, of course, you, the shoes you've been wearing probably mm. haven't been zero drop. Uh, and the trainers you've been wearing previously might not have been zero drop. So you can really put pressure on your Achilles tendon and the muscles up the back, you know, the posterior chains and the esthetic movement. So you have to be really careful. Um, I would say, and really isn't, I wouldn't want anybody to change their trainers on the back of this conversation. I don't even think you need that. I think you just need that. But mm. I think four to six mil is often where if there is an average runner. That seems to be about right. But I know Damien did his KT and zero drop, um, which is incredible. Um, yeah. You know, so you, you can do it, but you must transition to it. So yeah. be very, very careful. So it does matter. Um, but it is very much a personal choice. Mm. Um, whichever way you go up or down, transition slowly. Yeah, yeah, definitely that's good advice. I went like from wearing like 12 mil drop shoes to like those Vibram five finger shoes and I really Whoa. damaged my, I got plantar fasciitis that I just can't seem to shake. So at the moment I yeah. run a lot in road shoes. <laughs> it's the only yeah. thing that seems to work. You have to be so, so careful. Even bone, re- you know, bone remodeling takes about 17 weeks. So if you start to, to load your foot in a different way, the bones to strengthen, to take that new impact, that, that, you know, that takes four months for the bones to remodel 
to allow them to take that new impact. So yeah. even just soft tissue injuries you could be doing here and fascial injuries, you could actually be creating stress fractures as well. Yeah. So, but it, then if you just just concentrate on landing that foot well so that it, 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 it dissipates that impact, the, the better you move, the less important the trainers become. Uh-huh, yeah. They re honestly, they really, really do. They yeah. Less, you can run beautifully in a pair of wellies <laughs> or or really badly in a 250 pound pair of trainers. Okay, I like that analogy. It's not the deciding factor, it really isn't. Yeah, so anybody, whatever shoes they're wearing, the first thing they should do is video themselves and, and work through the points that we've covered in this video, it sounds like. Yeah, and, and, and you know, if you're changing your movement, you might not want to change other things as well, because yeah. there's a lot of changing going on. Yeah. Don't run out and buy, don't run out and try and buy your way out of trouble, that's the big message. Okay. From all of this is it's your body, it's you, it's your software, it's your hardware. Start to retrain that and work with that. You don't have to go out and buy anything. Yeah. Okay. So that is great advice. And we've got a couple of questions here on particular. There's two guys who have got particular um, issues that they want a little bit of advice on. So Guy Greater X says, um, "What is happening? Because he thinks his upper body twists sideways as he runs, um, especially yeah. over kind of rocky terrain." Um, yeah he says is that weak core or bad balance or like why is he twisting from side to side when he runs um well i'd obviously have to see him move to be absolutely sure but i think often what happens is so the arms the arms if the arms aren't good if the arms aren't doing what they should be doing they can create a huge amount of upper body rotation okay, okay. what should the arms so you, be doing then so you <coughs> so really with the arms really with the arms you're thinking about the shoulder being very, very relaxed and the elbow doing the work. So it's super okay. soft, relaxed shoulder so nice and relaxed. the elbow doing the work. And the elbow is making a dynamic movement to the rear. Uh -huh. okay. If the arms tend to come in front of you, then they tend to kind of spin you around a little bit. Oh, so if you're like moving them across the body, maybe? Yeah. And there's this, always this talk about the center line. They mustn't cross the center line. And that's true. But even if even if they don't cross the sensor line, if the trajectory of the arm is forward, then it does tend to spin you a little bit. But if he is running over over rocky ground and off road, then you, you do need to express yourself a little bit because the arms are balancing you. So we shouldn't run you know, all the time. We're looking for relaxation. Yeah, and relaxing the shoulders. I think yeah. The shoulder yeah. the shoulders is the big thing. We tend to sort of drive the arm with the shoulder as well. And then you create that spinning. If the shoulder just relaxes, all the arm has got to do is drive back. There's a lot less rotation. But, but you do want some rotation because a little bit of rotation creates elastic energy for the next rotation. Mm -hmm. The robot that's just super, and again, biomechanics would suggest that we need to be pretty rigid in our movement. You're not a machine. Yeah. You're elastic, synergistic, connected. So every you need a little bit of rotation to create elastic recall for the next little bit of rotation. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, or maybe uh, that's something for you to um, for Guy to tap you up on and um, get a consultation. Um, yeah. Send you a slow mo film and, and you can tell him um, yeah, what's sure. what. Yeah, okay. Um, I'll let him know. Um, and then uh, Graham um, is he's trying to change his running technique. Um, he's finding he's wearing the right outer edge of his trainer out, um, so the right outer edge. And he's trying to be more of a forefoot striker um, to take the pressure off his knee when he heel strikes. 
Um, he wants to know if he's doing something wrong um, uh, because okay. he feels like he's hitting the ground harder than normal. So, uh, so yeah, he's 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 trying to change, but he's finding that he's just now wearing out more of the right outer edge of his trainer. When, yeah, and he, uh, what he's trying to do is forfeit <clears throat> strike. Yeah. So, so, so there's a few really interesting things here that we can cover a multitude of sins for people that are, are, are listening. So, there's lots of different terminologies of forefoot, midfoot, and all these different different foot strikes. Um, forefoot could be misconstrued as well. It could be misconstrued as landing on the front of the foot and the heel never coming down. That's really bad. That's worse than heel striking. Really? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I've got to tell. I've got to tell my husband because he is sure that he just four foot strikes and he. Wow. he, he Text wants, him now. He needs to know. He, he needs yeah. Text him. Oh, Steve, <laughs> you're all wrong. Um, no, he thinks that he wants to buy a pair of shoes which doesn't have a heel on it. Yeah. Because he thinks yeah. that he just like basically tiptoes along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He needs to think harder. Yeah, he doesn't want to do that. <laughs> I'll send you a photo of his footwear, the wear of the... Because yeah. like Guy, uh, Graham Guy is here, um, he yeah. he wears the outer edge of his trainer as well. Yeah, that's a really odd way to run. You know, you might, if you were a sprinter, a 100 metre sprinter, you'd be on the very much on the forefoot. Maybe 200 metres after that, really, you need to land the foot with this tripod landing mm -hmm. um, because it's just a, a very... You just Even if you didn't injure you'd only be kind of running on two cylinders, you know, it's a really inefficient way to move. Um, but what's really interesting is, is that when we, so he, heel strike has been doing right, and everybody's kind of like reading in magazine articles, oh, okay, right, heel strike is bad, don't heel strike, land on, land on your forefoot, midfoot, whatever the terminology might be. So what people do is go out and plant the foot down. So planted flexing, Sticking the toes down and, and daughter flexing and sticking the toes up. So, what people are doing is running around and over planted flexing to make sure that they don't heel strike. But the very running gait that made them heel strike, they keep. The foot only really goes where the rest of the body puts it. So, if you all you do is plant and flex your way out of trouble to stop heel striking, but don't change the arms, the posture, the legs, any of the cadence, anything that was, was making your heel strike you've actually now got at least two different running gates going on and that's a recipe for disaster. At least if you're heel striking and you're running with a heel striking gate, at least it's one continuous gate. Mm. But two different gates is a challenge. So if somebody wants to change the way they move the foot lands, they need to change the way all of the body interacts. Uh, and then that's, a big, that's what the book talks a lot about is not if, if you're going to go away from a, uh, a walking gait when you're running to the animal on a straight leg, you need to change everything to get that foot landing up there. So you can't just change the foot position. Yeah. So probably Graham should buy your book and go through well, all the advice that. there. Well, <laughs> sounds, it sounds like that would but, be a good plan. <laughs> but, but, definitely, but definitely think of, definitely think about how that foot is landing and what he's doing to make that foot land in that way. If all he's doing is shortening his stride and dropping his foot down, he is then going to uh, potentially cause himself some problems. So he really just wants to get a little bit more height in that stride, 
get the legs circling underneath him to get that lamp foot landing on a foot landing on a tripod. Um, yeah. That way, he's, he's got a running gait, a continuous running gait. So that's that's a lot better. Yeah. A lot better for Brilliant. That sounds great. Um, yeah, so lots of advice there for everybody. Um, it is getting dark, so I am going to let you go soon. Um, it's great, <laughs> it's great that you've done this broadcast outside. <laughs> it's a good job that you've <laughs> I'm got... always outside. I'm yeah. outside. That's great. I love it. Um, I do have one last question for you, but, and then I'm going to read out some nice comments. from Everyone's written some quite nice comments here um, about the broadcast um, and about the book as well. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to ask you, I asked you just before the show, and you said that you don't know of any research on this, but um, I'm a four and a half months pregnant at the moment and I was out running the other day obviously I'm heavier I'm kind of the center of gravity is a little bit different um, uh, and I was thinking I wonder if Shane knows anything that I should be doing to just make my life easier for myself because I felt really yeah. ploddy and thuddy so yeah have yeah. you got any advice for people who are, um, uh, are pregnant and and built a bit differently during that time phase is there anything that we should be concentrating on to get the most out of our um, short and very slow runs. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it was a really good question. And as we as we discussed off air at the start, it's not something I've really spent any time on, you know. I really haven't, and I, and I should, and I will. Um, but what I, and I think my answer to you was, well, what you do need to do is make sure that you are moving well so that that foot is landing well and it is dissipating the impact at, at, at source. Um, and that the knees are soft and, and that, you know, that, that foot is relatively underneath you so that your body is acting as, as a shock absorber long before the bump gets involved, if you like. So, um, you know, so that's even more important than ever. It's important to everybody, but even more important. But other than that, nothing specific. Um, I'm just thinking about the, you know, the, the, the bow and the centre line. Is, 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 that wouldn't really change, that you, you still want to have that centre of gravity. It might get slightly harder because as you get more your centre of gravity over more, if there's more of you in the upper body, then that might tilt it more. So that might become harder um, to keep that angle. So I would probably just really concentrate on make, make sure that foot is landing well. You're not overstriding and you haven't got a negative trajectory of impact coming back at you. Yeah, it sounds like it would be even more damaging at this time of life than any other. I think, yeah, so if every single runner on the planet should be doing that anyway, but with, with, yeah. uh, with uh, being pregnant, even more so, I guess. But, I, but I, what I will do is I'll look into that, and when we yeah. catch up, we'll, 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 we'll chat about it. Definitely. And kind of put something out on, on what I find. Yeah, yeah, actually. It's a big thing, do, isn't it? It's a big yeah, thing. Yeah, we could do two things. We could do a film on the uphill running, just in general, and then we could do a little, you know, top three tips for pregnant women in the technique yeah, yeah, of running. Sure. Because, yeah. yeah, I just I just really wondered, and, and as the pregnancy progresses, like, I'm only, like, four and a half months, so it's not very big at the moment, but I am the heaviest I've ever been in my life. So sure. it is definitely yeah. something to consider. And also to consider would be, like, is there any impact on bouncing the uterus around? Like yeah, does the baby bounce exactly. around? Like, yeah, I don't know. So yeah, I, I think I think the baby think does bounce around. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, but but it, I, I guess to a degree that's okay because we, of course, would have been designed as persistence hunters to be running around in groups and tribes, following the meat, and uh, that would have involved moving long distances whilst whilst carrying the child. Yeah, so, um, I think we're designed, but like anything, we've got to make sure that those forces are good forces. Um, uh, but again, we should all really be doing that anyway. Yes, 
Fantastic. Well, um, hopefully one day I'll write a book on pregnancy and running and um, there'll be a whole section from you in then there we'll all know. with loads then of we'll research. All yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, well, I just want to say a massive thank you for coming on tonight, Shane. Um, Pleasure. Yeah, it's just been really fascinating to talk to you and, and every time that I talk to you, I, I learn a different word or I find a new concept and, <laughs> and I feel and I, I love your passion and enthusiasm for the technique of running. And I just find like, isn't that brilliant that you don't have to go out and kill yourself? Yourself. you just have to go out and really focus on what you're doing it's kind of like a free free win isn't it yeah you don't you don't you don't kill yourself going and doing yoga do you no or, or ballet so why why do you oh, why, does ballet. Why, really why, why does running have to be a blood and gut sport you know yeah. it doesn't have to be uh, i think if you're a racer then you have to go to that dark place and stay there sometimes but actually you know it, it should just be a movement skill yeah, it's a skill. Like we learn how to ski, don't we? But no one really teaches yeah. you ever to run. You just kind of do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to read you some really nice things that people have said. Um, so Di, whose question you answered, he has been watching, um, and he said, "Great answer, thank you, Shane and Claire." Um, Richard Green said, "I love this book. It taught me loads, and I love that book cover. Thanks, Shane." Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and uh, Nadia Federman said, ah, oh, I can profit from all my earlier dancing lessons in running now, cool. There you go. <laughs> um, Ruth says, congratulations, Claire. And so does Richard Green. Thank you, guys. And um, Guy says, answer, uh, thanks for answering my question. Great advice. And um, Ruth says, what an interesting interview. I've learned so much. I will definitely be buying the book. Thank you, Shane. And Philip Haddock says, thanks Shane, really informative. Uh, Nadia said, wonderful today. Thank you, Claire and Shane. Um, and yeah, and that is all everybody who has written in. So yeah, thanks Excellent. so much. It's been fantastic. And <laughs> before you become oh, just before you become just a black blob on the screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, bat, the bats are moving around yeah. now, so you know it's time to go home when the bats come out. Yeah, but if you're interested in buying Shane's book, which I'm sure loads of people will be after listening to this, um, it's The Art of Lost, The Lost Art of Running, not The, the Art of Lost Running, The, the Lost Art Dimmer of love. Running. <laughs> it's by Shane Bedsey, um, with, also with Tim Major, um, and uh, it's available right now in all good bookshops, and I've put a link to buy the book in the film description or the podcast show notes. So dig in everybody and uh, and see how far you can get. Maybe book a consultation with Shane or a training camp to learn further, because it sounds fascinating. Excellent, thank you. Brilliant, well, night Shane, and um, hope to come and visit you soon and we'll do something on uphill running and pregnancy running. Yeah, see you at the pavilion. Cool, see you soon, bye. bye. See you, bye, take care. Hi, it's Claire here. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. These live chats take place every Wednesday evening at 6.30pm UK time on World Ginger Running YouTube channel. And the link is in the show notes. I just wanted to let you know that you can find this and loads more advice and inspiration and gear tests all about trail and ultra running on my YouTube channel, Wild Ginger Running. There are training tips, advice from elite athletes, top coaches, nutritious recipes, key exercises, injury prevention information, and tons of trail kit reviewed from running packs to poles, waterproofs to head torches, GPS watches, and shoes, 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 and did I mention shoes? I've been going for a few years now, so there's a huge archive of content to help you out with your trail and ultra running. 
To quickly and easily find the information you need, simply type your query into the Google search box and then write wild ginger running after it. Then Google will show you whatever blog posts or films I have on that topic. Give it a try. And if you appreciate listening and all the information that I share on YouTube, you're also very welcome to support me on Patreon, which gets you some additional excellent perks and the chance to win some awesome prizes. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee every month, patrons get discounts, extra films, access to the exclusive Facebook and Strava groups, the chance to ask questions to every live chat guest, plus automatic entry into my monthly competition to win £400 worth of trail and ultra running gear. There are only about 150 patrons, so the odds on a win are way better than the lottery. Interested? Find me at patreon.com slash wildgingerrunning. Thanks for listening, guys. Have fun, enjoy your run, and I'll see you on the trails.